0: If you are new, um, we're in the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 21. And on Sunday, I grab an idea usually out of that chapter. And then Wednesday, right back here, where it's air-conditioned and really nice, at 7 o'clock, we go through the rest of the chapter. So you're invited to that. Um, If you do get hot, feel free to move. If you're hot right now, guess what? It'll get hotter. So you might want to move. So feel free, there is shade. You have to chase it. Um, the sun is moving that way. So the shade moves this way. All right, so Genesis 21, because of summer amnesia and we've been gone for a while, uh, I've been gone for a while and we had converged that weekend. I wanna recap kind of the story of Abraham because I have found in my own studies that Abraham's life is really helpful. Helpful. The New Testament doesn't give us like a diary of somebody's life who pursued God by faith. And yet the Old Testament is viewed by the New Testament. And when it does, it picks Abraham as the father of faith. Like, check out this guy, check out his wife. Like it's always pointing back at these two. So I found like Abraham is almost a journal of how to walk out faith in Yahweh, faith in Jesus. So it's been brilliant for me. So let me recap what that has looked like. In chapters 12 and 13, Abraham is called by God. He is told by God, leave your home, leave comfort, leave security, leave inheritance, leave community, leave everything that you know and go to a place that you have no idea where and I'm gonna give it to you. And Abraham with incredible trust does that. Chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 14, his nephew Lot, who accompanied him, is kidnapped and captured by this confederacy of kings and then taken up north. So Abraham gets 318 guys together, some buddies he had made in the land, and they chase down these kings, defeat them, free Lot, free the entire city. And he's a hero, like brilliant. Chapter 15, God comes to Abraham, who at this point is 84 years old, and has not had a child yet. His wife is 65 years old. And he says to Abraham, hey, look up at the stars. If you could number them, that's how your descendants will be. And it says that Abraham amended God and that was counted to him as righteousness. He was just like, all right, cool. I believe you. What a brilliant chapter. In chapter 16, is a valley for Abraham because he tries to create kids on his own. And you have the Hagar-Ishmael saga. Chapter 16 is a low point. But then chapter 17, God comes back to Abraham almost like saying, hey, I know that was a mistake, but listen, I have not given up on you. And he says, I wanna make a covenant with you, Abraham. And I want everyone else to know that's around you. I want them to know that you're my guy, that I have not given up on you. And so Abraham is like, "Okay, what's the mark? What's it going to be?" And he's 99 years old or 90 years old. And God says to him, "I want you to be circumcised." You want to get a 90-year-old man's attention? Tell him to be circumcised. And so Abraham tries to bargain, "Can we get a tattoo instead? Like a Yahweh tattoo or something?" Is there Can we bargain here? <laughs> Brilliant. Then cha- and he obeys. Gen chapters 18 and 19 is Sodom. And its wickedness, God destroys it. Then, chapter 20 Abraham lies about his wife, and she's taken into a king's harem called Abimelech. And you know, if you remember that story, she's brilliant. And this pagan king rebukes Abraham, the prophet of God, for his unrighteousness. Can I, what'd you do? Why are you doing this to us? When you're hurting us. Chapter 20. So that's the story, like these just brilliant story after brilliant story after brilliant story. Okay, let's look at our text. Chapter 21. Of Genesis, verse 33, with that context in mind. Genesis 21:33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. What's your response to that? Who has this as their favorite Bible verse? (laughs) Abraham planted a tree. I love that verse. Doesn't it seem like too much information? Like you've got all these great, incredible stories. And then you come to the end of chapter 21. Chapter 22 is the culmination of the promise. Chapter 21, you have this, and Abraham planted a tree. It reminds me of people that are really bad storytellers. Do you know that kind of person? Oh, Matt, I got to tell you something that happened to me on Tuesday. Was it Tuesday? Yes, it was Tuesday. Because Tuesday is the day that I take my garbage down. And I always have to walk my garbage down early because I never know what time they're going to come on Tuesday. Why don't they send out a schedule? I think I took it down at 11. Yes, it was 11 because that's when I let my cat out to go to the bathroom. My cat always goes to the bathroom in my flowers, always in the petunias, my favorite kind of flowers. I had petunias on my wedding day. I had such a beautiful wedding. It was so awesome. Do you know people like that? I get you the point, Right? If you don't know a person like that, it's you. Stop it. Get to the point. It feels like that kind of information, like, huh? He planted a tree. Who cares, man? Tell us about the birth of Isaac. But here's here's what you must know about God's word it's been shaped to shape us, that there's no information in it that's unnecessary or spurious. It's shaped to shape us. And very often it's the one text that you're like, what in the the head scratcher, that they're the most important. And I think right here, you have one of those texts, right? And what happens in a lot of these texts is this, it's as if the lens goes wide for a second to give us a big picture and then zooms back in again. I think that's what's happening here. So let me go wide lens for one minute, maybe longer. In Genesis, we've already studied these chapters, but Genesis, Genesis begins in chapter one by God creating, and then he creates, and he creates you and me, the culmination. And what are we called when God creates us? The Imago Dei. We are called the image of God, that humans uniquely are supposed to be representing down here what God is like. We're the image bearer. We reflect him, if you would. We're mirrors, tiny mirrors of him. Well, what does that image look like? I think all you have to do is read chapter one and see what that image is supposed to look like. What does God do in chapter one? He creates, right? He takes chaos and he creates out of it. God is a creative being. Have you ever heard of a three-toed yak sloth? I Me mean, neither. I made it up. <laughs> you look at creation though, and what does creation do? It reflects this magic, this creativity of God. It's incredible. Right? He's a creator. But secondly, God's a worker. Right? In chapter 1, for six days, God works, He works and works and works. And then on chapter two, verse four, He takes a rest on the seventh day. God works. And here's what he does. In Genesis, verse two, chapter one, it says that this earth was without form and void. The land, the Ha audits, was chaotic. And then through a process of six days, God takes that chaos and begins to order it more and more and more and more, taming the chaos, making it better and better. That's what we're supposed to do. If you miss this in chapter two, it's a very important verse. It's verse five. Verse five says this, that the garden, that we imagine like paradise with with like grapes dropping in our mouth, that's not the way it was. Chapter two, verse five says the garden... There was no shrubs in it. It was wild. It was untamed. Why? Because God had not caused the rain to fall on it. And there was no man to work the land. There was no cultivator. There's no worker. What happens in Southern Oregon when land is left unworked, uncultivated? Does it turn into a beautiful garden? No. You get blackberries, poison oak, or marijuana. That's what's going to grow on it. (laughs) Just spontaneously. So you have, you have, it's it's an untamed wilderness. God has not caused rain to fall on it. And there's no man to work it yet. The word work there is a brilliant Hebrew word. It's avada, And it can mean to cultivate or garden, but it can also mean to dedicate or to craft. It's the same kind of word you would use if you're taking raw lumber and you're making a yoke of oxen, yoke for oxen out of it. That, that's what it, the same kind of word. It's, it's a brilliant, incredible. There was no one to take the rawness of the garden and to make something beautiful and incredible out of it. That that was man's job. Take this raw thing, this, this rawness, and make something beautiful out of it. It's as if in chapter one, God makes a capital investment. Look at all this resource. And then in chapter two, God says to humans, partner with me in it. That's why it mentions gold and jewels and all this stuff you wouldn't use for gardening. It was bigger than that. Make something beautiful. Be creative. Do great things with this. All right, so so that's chapter one. Read the very last chapter of the Bible. What happens there? It's you and I. Believers in Jesus join with people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And we dwell in a city, but it's a very unique city because there's trees there and there's a river there. It's a garden. The tree of life is there. It's the termination or the culmination of this life. History is this. We, a bunch of us, because our mandate was be fruitful and multiply, a bunch of us live in a garden and it's called a city. That that's God's big plan. So in Abraham... Plants a tree, what are you supposed to think of? Genesis 2, verse 4. That's what he's doing. He's cultivating, he's making it better, right? And right now, you and I can say, well, that's way out there or that's way back then. No, I think it's right now. Let me read for you one little poem from Isaiah. I kind of have Isaiah on the mind right now. So listen to this. You've probably heard it before, it's quite incredible. It's Isaiah chapter two. It says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it And many peoples, the Gentiles, shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the Torah and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. How brilliant is that? What's the end? What are those instruments used for? What's a plowshare used for? What's a pruning hook used for? Gardening, right? Planting trees, gardening. Take your swords that were used for destruction and instead turn them into something constructive. Take your spears that were used to kill people and use them to produce more fruit on your trees, right? Garden instead of destroying. Flip this thing on its head, right? So you don't buy a Noveski gun, you buy a tractor. They cost the same anyways, (laughs) Right? You you flip this thing on its head and we can do that right now. We can start bettering and constructing, taking raw things and using them to bless and to build. That's what it's about. And I think that in every single one of us, and I've said this before, in our Imago day, there is stamped on us the desire to do Genesis 1. To take the chaos that we see and to bring order to it. Just like God did throughout that entire week to take chaos and bring order. And when you talk to people about what is meaningful in their life, you can almost always say that's Genesis one stuff. Business, people that love business. The reason why they love it, man, I grabbed this idea. It was raw, it was unformed. And then I talked to some people and we started to whittle it down and make it better and better. And then we got some good employees that gathered around and they joined with us. And then we got a good philosophy and a methodology, and now we're able to produce great stuff that people love. That's Genesis chapter one, good, good stuff, right? You talk to a builder that loves to build stuff. I take raw lumber, an idea in my head and steel and concrete and stone, and I start to shape them and move them. I take the disordered lumber and I make a beautiful home that a family can Enjoy and love each other in. It's brilliant. You talk to an artist, I take all these colors that if you mixed all the colors together, it'd be mud, but with just the right color here and just the right color there, it's this beautiful portrait. Or these clanging sounds, I, I arrange these sounds into something that's music and people love it, right? Farmers, they kind of make stuff to eat, they take manure and they take seed. And God gives them the sun and the rain, and they arrange it, and they till it, and they work it, and they produce good things for people to eat. Teachers take these rowdy third graders that, that have unruly hair and won't look you in the eye and can't sit still, and over the course of nine months, they begin to instill into them discipline and order, showing them the possibility they have in life and releasing them into the fourth grade. Man, that's brilliant! That's chaos. To order counselors take disorganized lives and catastrophe of lives, and they help them and walk with them through that catastrophe and try to order those things into something that's real and beautiful and brilliant. Ordered doctors take unhealthy broken bodies and give them health. Dentists take unhealthy broken teeth and give a beautiful smile. Doctors take blurred vision and they give you know good vision. You just go down them Finan- financial planners, people that are chaotic in their finances. They give to them that cursed word, the budget. I hate budgets. Then you'll love bankruptcy. Take your choice, right? And they order their finances in such a way that they can start thriving in life. My job, take the chaos of theology and try to cohesively shape a story that makes sense and ah, okay, I get it. I love that. The aha moments. It's almost always Genesis 1 stuff that's in us that gives us meaning. It's chaos to order. It can happen in so many different ways. I'm glad everyone's not a pastor because I'm going to a big barbecue today for my nephew Josiah's 16th birthday. And if it was just pastors, what would we eat? Barbecue a book? I mean, I don't know. I'm glad there are farmers and other people that are doing the same thing, just in different spheres right? That's the big picture. That's what you see right here with Abraham. He's ordering this place, this desert Beersheba place. He's ordering, he's bringing beauty to it, all right? So that's a wide lens. I want to zero in fairly quickly on two things that I think are really cool about verse 33, okay? Number one, notice this. Abraham, 99 years old, planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. He didn't plant a tomato. He planted a tamarisk tree. If you're 99 and you're planting a tree, who's gonna enjoy the shade of that tree? Probably not you. Abraham, number one is this. His work is focused on the future. So Abraham at this point in life is successful. He's made his money. He's made his mark. He's done everything he wants to do. And now his whole goal is this little well here at Beersheba. It's barren. It's a bummer. No one would want to stay here. I'm going to make it awesome so that the caravans that come through here will be the rest in the shade of a giant tree. So he plants a tree for the future of others. If you've noticed, people that have made their millions or their 1000000000s After they've made their millions or their billions, what do they often do? They start investing in the future of others, right? The Carnegie's, the Vanderbilts, the Ford Foundation up north, Bill and Melinda Gates, right? Currently the richest man in the world. What's he doing with all his money and his time? He's investing in the future of others. It's very Abrahamic. It's like in us to say, hey, I've done that. Now I want to bless other people. That should be in all of us when it comes to our city. How do we bless the next generations of Grants Pass? Oh come on, Matt, though. Grants Pass, I mean, look at all the problems. Place is going to pot. <laughs> Crime, homeless, this issue traffic. You haven't seen traffic till you've been in Portland. <laughs> I mean, come on. Whenever someone complains about traffic, I giggle. <laughs> Sixth Street at five o'clock. It took me seven minutes to get through. Yeah. Wow. I'm crying right now. Really am. We can have this mentality that's like, "Oh, you know,." Uh. The Bible talks about a city, and it's the worst city in the Bible. It's called Babylon. So Babylon is a real city, but it actually becomes a symbol throughout Scripture of everything that's wrong in city. So in Jeremiah, there's this great section. chapters 28 and 29, read them. In chapter 28, it's this. There's a group of God's people they're living in the suburbs. They're traveling into Babylon and they're coming back to the suburbs because they want nothing to do with the city. They want the city to go to H-E-L-L. We could care less about this city, let it go. Well, God comes in chapter 29 and says, you were wrong. And he says this to those guys, living in the suburbs, hating the city of Babylon, the worst city in the Bible. He says to them, you do three things. Number one, he says, you invest in that city. You go there, you build houses. You go there, you plant gardens. You go there, you eat the fruit of that. You build houses, you plant gardens, you start becoming contributing members. You invest in the city of Babylon, number one. Charity and I have toyed around with this idea. Of buying a house in downtown Grants Pass as close to 6 and G as we could get like in the pawn shop. I mean, talk about a mission right there. (laughs) People hawking their life. Let me help you. We've thought about that because we feel like that's really important. Invest in the city of Grand Spouse. Invest, number one. Number two, he says this, increase. Give your kids in marriage. Have babies. Start increasing your numbers here. Don't decrease, increase. And then number three, infect it with my shalom. Pray for the peace of that city because when my peace comes on that city, you'll benefit from it. So if you do these things for the city of Babylon, my peace is gonna rest on it and you will be blessed. Invest, increase, and infect it with shalom. That's what we're supposed to do. And here's the thing. For a lot of church history, that's exactly what the church did. You can get this book if you want to. It's called Uh, The Rise of Christianity, it's written by a a a not-a-believing professor. His name is Rodney Stark. Brilliant read. He's just like, how in the world did a group of nobodies in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, how did they come to take over the Roman Empire? Because by AD 350, 50% of all the cities of Rome were Christian. That's unbelievable. It's nothing like that has ever happened in history. What happened? And he said this. One of the factors was this, the plagues that when the plagues would rip into these cities, pagans realized this. Hey, we get sick by contact. So I'm not shaking your hand, I'm fist bumping you, right? I'm perelling my hands. So they realized very quickly, if a plague hit, get out of the city, just go. And the people with wealth and money and influence would leave and the ones that were left behind were the sick and the poor who couldn't and then they would all die. Well, that happened for years and centuries until the Christians came. Because the Christians said, hey, I know where I go when I die. And I'm not worried about death. I know my king has defeated death and I'll stay in this city. And they started staying and they found this, that if that person that was sick just got food and water and was protected from wild animals, about half of them recovered. So all of a sudden you have all these people recovering and they're very thankful to believers. And they're like, why did you do this for me? And they'd be able to share Jesus. Jesus. And the families would come back and they'd be like, you're alive, wow, why? Because of Jesus. And then all of a sudden it just started to rapidly increase the effect of Christianity in the Roman empire because they ran to the plague, not from the plague. I think Christians should be always looking for opportunities in the plague. Whatever you think is a plague in Grant's Pass, that's God saying, run to that thing. Be me there, watch me change that. That's how history has changed. Here's what's sad though. I have this study from the Harvard School of Public Health. It's called Reimagining Aging Baby Boomers and Civic Involvement. You can Google if you want. And what they're asking is this, the baby boomers who are the most financially well-off group in the history of the world, no one has as much capital ever as the baby boomers. How are they doing when it comes to involvement in their cities? And what they found was this, they're the worst engaged group ever. That the previous generation, we call it the greatest generation, they were 100% in. In fact, they even talk about the millennials, right? We mock the millennials because we think they're always on technology and social media. Well, it said this in this today, I found this fascinating. Boomers are on their phones more than millennials. Usually it's trying to figure out how to text, like, how do you work this thing? I need a millennial, come here, show me how to work this. How do you turn this on, Right? So, the, the ones with, with really the time and the resources are sitting back with their arms crossed, complaining, moving away, while those that are in need are suffering. It makes me sad. I'll just write a letter to the editor Man, the place is going to hell. All right. And I'm so glad Edgewater, we're bucking that trend. We have a group called Titus 2. It's mostly boomer gals who they volunteer so much time. It's unbelievable to me. Tons of time and all their time is Abrahamic. They're trying to plant trees in the next generation. How do we help these young girls? How can we invest in them? And I know this. I know a little bit about our church. It is the most effective, efficient ministry at Edgewater Christian Fellowship. All volunteer run, all by boomers. Love these ladies. They're brilliant. We have a house right now where we have said, we're gonna use this house for this next generation, young men to try to give, launch them into electricians and carpenters and whatever it is. So right now we have four men there. Pray for these guys. Names are Timothy, Richard, Tyler, and Brandon. Pray for those four names because our hope is let's invest in them. Let's launch them into the spheres of Grant's past to influence it pray for them. One of the guys, Daniel was there for a long time. We sent him to Uganda. And right now he's making fish raising pens in Uganda to bless a little village in the middle of nowhere because God loves those people, right? That's, that's what's supposed to be happening. That's exactly what Abraham's doing. I'm planting this tree, not for my use, but for the next generation we got Eric Henderson going to OIA saying the same thing. Let's bring God's shalom to OIA. Save families. You guys are doing awesome there. We're trying to do better and better with that. It's the same idea. Let's do this where we see a plague because that's where we can be most effective. That's where Jesus is most needed. That's what Abraham does. Plants a tree. The work is for the future. Number two, and I'll be quick, it's the connectedness. Notice this. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. What a phenomenal name there. We'll talk about that on Wednesday. Abraham connects something. He works and he worships. He plants and he praises. He gardens and he comes into God's glory. You know how rare that is today? Most of us have disconnected work and worship. And here's the reason why. 700 years ago, there was a brilliant man. His name is St. Thomas Aquinas. I love a lot of things he did. I don't love this one. He said, life is like a two-story building. The bottom story is the secular stuff that we all do, right? Weeding the garden, mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, washing the car, washing whatever, going to work, the mundane activities. He says, that's the bottom story. You do all those things so that you can get to the second story, which is Bible, prayer, and fasting. So he had this two-story idea. It's called the sacred-secular divide. And that was 700 years ago. But what's fascinating is there's still a shadow of that that affects the church today. That most people feel like, hey, the most important things I can be doing is Bible, Bible. Prayer and fasting, those are huge, important, great things. So we still have it in us. And then the rest of our life is kind of filler so that we can get back to Bible, worship, and prayer. That those are the big things that we need to be doing all the time, right? I think most of us can sense that. I I hear it when people say, oh, I'm looking to get into full-time ministry. I hate that term. We're all full-time pursuers of Jesus that's all it is. So there's still this really crazy idea. And it turns the 40 hour work week into really nothing more than filler so that we can get back to church stuff. That work itself has no intrinsic value. And I don't buy that at all. I don't buy that. Here's a couple of reasons why. If you look at the law, which is God's way of shaping the nation of Israel, So, if he was trying to shape it to be on the second story, then you would think all of it would be about second story stuff. But if you look at the 613 laws, most of them deal with the bottom story. Laws like, hey, when you go to the bathroom, take a shovel and bury it. That's a law. How awesome is that? God says, because I'm around and I just don't want to walk in it. Essentially, that's what God says. It's so awesome. God says this, hey, if you touch a dead body, wash your hands and then wait a little while to see if you got the same disease. Top story or bottom story? Bottom story, right? Hey, if you build a house and you kind of want to look out and see caravans going by of camels, that's awesome. But if you build a balcony on that, make sure and put a guardrail on it so nobody falls off. That's Deuteronomy two eight. Top story or bottom story? Bottom story. If you dig a hole, tell your neighbor and then put a cover on it so no one falls into it at night. Top story or bottom story? I go on and on and on and on. Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water to a child, not if you preach a message as important as that is, but he did not say that. If you give a cup of cold water to a child, you have a reward in heaven. Jesus elevates what we would call the secular. He does it like Abraham. That work itself, the planting of a tamarisk tree, gardening has value, that it is worth something. Okay, Matt, what are we supposed to do? Quit our jobs and go plant trees? Yes. <laughs> we're buying 5,000 acres, <laughs> we need to plant some trees. No, we're supposed to be involved in a good work. I think a good work can be defined by Genesis 1 taking chaos, and out of chaos, creating order. That a good work for a carpenter is real simple. It's create the best possible table that a family can gather around that, eat food, thank Jesus, laugh, and celebrate. That's a great work for a carpenter. And what was Jesus for 30 years? A carpenter. I think Jesus made great tables that families could gather around eat good food, and laugh until stuff came out of their nose. And that was a good work. Have you ever seen the checkout lady who's just brilliant? Like she's making you laugh. She's actually creating community with with the other checkers. She's like talking back and forth to them. it's It's like, wow, you are amazing at your job. Man, that to me is worship. That's worship right there. She's creating order from chaos. It's everywhere. The secular sacred divide is so damaging to the kingdom. We have to dissolve it. And I think maybe this message was spurred on by when I was up in Portland. So in Portland, I had to go to school. We were camping. So I took a bus. It was an hour and 20 minute, two buses into where my, the seminary is. So each morning I would get up, get on the bus. And I tell people all the time, don't go to the zoo in Portland. Just get on the bus. It's so much better. You see just great stuff. Get a planet earth video if you want to do that, but ride the bus. So I'm on the bus and and I'm kind of a rebel. So I'm sitting in the back because I like to see as well. So that bus probably made, I'm going to guess 60 stops from the time I got on it and the second bus till the time I got off. So 60 stops. It's Wednesday, almost at the end of the second bus. And for the first time in now 150, 160, 170 stops, I heard somebody say thank you to the bus driver. And it like, I was like, whoa. It was almost like weird. I had forgotten that there's the Imago day. creating order out of what could be chaos by driving this bus well. And then the next stop, a person got off and guess what she said? She said, thank you. Two thank yous in a row. Then the third stop, somebody got off and it was a guy and guess what he said? He said, thank you. And then I got off and guess what I said? Thank you. That this lady had reminded us of something and had started something that was like, yeah, that's so important. This person should be thanked. That right there is the Imago Dei doing a good job and I should be thankful for that. But if you have it two separate, the only time you'd thank somebody is if they're doing Bible prayer or fasting. And it's wrong. We need to blend them together just like Abraham did. Listen to me, tomorrow morning, Monday, Monday morning at eight o'clock is morning worship. And you show up at the job, that's morning worship. The Bible says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God that you show up Monday morning and you are taking your job as an opportunity to take the chaos of relationships and the craziness of personalities and the weirdness of whatever's happening. And you're saying, Jesus, I wanna shape this thing better today. And to me, that brings glory to God. And to me, that builds a kingdom right here. And I'll let you in on a secret. It's from Dallas Willard. And he says this, Invite Jesus along every morning because he is the smartest person in your field. You want to do your work well, glorifying to God, invite Jesus along every single morning. Come with me, help me shape this thing, help me do this well. So, tomorrow morning, we're missionaries in the city of Grants Pass to invest in it, to increase in it, to see people saved and then to infect it with the shalom of God. And when you see work that way, here's what happens. Work becomes the mission and grants past becomes the kingdom. It works like that. The 40 hours isn't wasted, filler. The 40 hours is mission. I think you see that right here when Abraham, this man of faith, connects gardening with glory. Work with worship. It's the way it's supposed to be. So you guys... Every single one of you, retired or not, volunteer, get involved. We're all missionaries to Grants Pass. And if we did this work well, just as true in here, how different could Grants Pass be? If we really started thanking bus drivers, if we really started thanking clerks, if we started really looking at our workplaces, invest, increase, infect, how different would Grants Pass be? I think we change our city, and it becomes a little outpost of the kingdom, a city set on a hill, shining out the light of Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer for us. And to me, that's Genesis 21, 33. Not a filler verse, a phenomenal verse. And if you're here today and you're saying, I don't know if I'm part of that kingdom. I don't even know what it means to bring glory to Jesus. Then every single day in the summertime, we do baptism. And baptism is super simple. Acts chapter two says this, repent and be baptized. Repent means change your mind. Change your mind about the way you thought things were. Change your mind about the way you thought about God specifically and be baptized. Outwardly, taking the sign It's not circumcision for us. It's baptism, taking the sign that I am part of team Jesus. And then he seals you with his Holy Spirit and then commissions you on a mission to Grant's Pass. And so we offer that to you. And so Jesus, may we like Isaiah be saying, here I am, send me. May we look at Monday morning as an opportunity to invest, to increase, and to infect our city with your shalom. And I pray, Lord, that the way that we work and the way that we do things would represent your values and your passions above our own. So help us in that, Lord. Purge us and refine us. May we take Isaiah 2 to heart, what is our motives? Is it to garden and create beauty or is it destroy and create our own fiefdoms? So do that good work in us. And may Monday morning, may an army of missionaries be sent into this city. And may our city have your shalom. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.